All right, let's open our Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. We're actually going to be beyond the first four verses today. Uh, we're going to look at 5 through 11. Now, Habakkuk has had his chance to complain to the Lord, and we've seen that. Why are you doing this, Lord? Uh, why is injustice here? Why is, uh, why is the law being paralyzed? Why do the wicked surround the righteous? Why, why, why? And now God's going to answer him. Um, and he gives a, a, a better answer than what we might think. Because, you know, we'd like to think to some degree God's going to say, well, it's because I want to. Okay, That's kind of the way that God doesn't have to justify himself before us. Um, but the answer is not what Habakkuk wanted to hear. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I'll read the word of God. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today and, and there are a lot of questions in our hearts about why you do things, why you allow things, and things that we may not think are right, but yet you allow. But in all of this, you are at work. Help us to understand that, that your perfect plan is being carried out, uh, even when you don't tell us, even when you don't make it plain to us, even when you hide it from us. You are still at work. Lord, open our eyes to your precious word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, and this is God's answer. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And you can just imagine, we'll see in a minute, Habakkuk's going, yeah, yeah, this is great. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. They, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is God's inspired word for us today. Please be seated. All right, now the Lord is at work in the world. Okay, and we see from, this, from the New Testament that he who began a good work in us will what? He'll bring it to completion. He is faithful to complete it. Uh, so once he starts a work in his life, and we're talking about salvation there in particular, uh, he's going to bring it to completion. Now, uh, that completion may be the, the return of Christ. It might be our time before when we stand before the Lord, but he's going to bring it to completion. So uh, he's at work. There's nothing new. He's been at work from the moment that he spoke things into existence. He's achieving his ends uh, by a variety of means. And sometimes he tells us particular things that he is doing. Isaiah, as an example, says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. He's doing something new. So when the Lord does a new thing, we can't look back and say, well, what does that mean? We have to say, hopefully he's going to explain it to us. And in Isaiah, he does. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
Ooh, well, what's that mean? Okay. <laughs> we get an explanation. God is planning on doing something new for his people of Israel, as the prophet communicates that. And he something that they would not expect. In fact, something that is so out of the ordinary, only God can do it. He is making roads in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Both of these things would seem impossible to the, the people at that time, but yet the Lord promises that's what he's going to do. God was saying he is the one who is responsible for these things, bringing something new forward. You can't miss that this is a new thing unless, of course, you have a hard heart. Your eyes are closed to the things of the Lord. Your ears are silent. The new thing God is doing is bringing a new path for his people. That's from Isaiah. Here in Habakkuk, we've heard Habakkuk's cry, and now we get the Lord's answer. And, and in particular, like I said, it says, I'm doing a work in your days you would not believe if I told it to you. We'll stop there. Okay? Pretend like you haven't read the rest of it. Habakkuk hears that, and he goes, yeah, okay, justice is going to come. The Lord is going to come, and he's either going to come in a revival and change all the hearts, and everybody's going to go back to worshiping him, or he is going to come and judge those who have been uh, unjust, those who have been des destroying the law, all those things. He is going to do that, and it's about time. This is Habakkuk speaking. It's about time, right? Now, we all like to tell God our answers to our prayers, okay? Lord, I know you're sovereign and, and you've got this handled, but if I were you, I might do it this way, okay? Now, every once in a while, if I want to say if our heart is right and if the Lord has opened our eyes to it, that's the, that's the right way because we're praying God's will. We're not praying Randy's will, we're praying God's will. That doesn't happen very often, okay? God is not usually stuck for a plan. He doesn't usually need our input into it. But when we pray for something in particular and it comes about, it is because we have prayed for God's perfect will and we prayed God's perfect will. He has brought it out. He didn't go, oh man, I think of that. Randy said, right? I think I'm going to do it his way. Well, you know that's not true. He does it his way. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. But nonetheless, I'm going to tell you. And he's still not going to believe it. And if he does believe it, he is certainly not going to like it. Okay? So the Lord doesn't have to explain to Habakkuk why he hasn't intervened. Why he hasn't come and changed the hearts. Why he hasn't judged those Jews who were um, you know, usurping the law and, and doing all those bad things. He just says, I'm the one that's in control. Now, we're going to look at three things, and they're things that I found that, that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about for uh, this chapter. Just to, to refresh your memory, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a physician in England, and then he went, came, became a Christian, went to seminary, was actually the, the chaplain for the Queen for a while, a uh, very prominent Reformed individual. Um, anybody with uses their first initial, you know, it's got to be something special. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Or Thomas Jenkins. It doesn't have the same ring. Okay? So, number one. History is under God's control. Okay? History is under God's control regardless of how it seems to us. It may seem like it's chaos, but God is in control. 
Okay, we can say that, but I have to live in the chaos. That, that is right. Look at verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now the Chaldeans are the Babylonians. They're, they're kind of interchangeable. That name is interchangeable. We say the Babylonians because Babylon was a city. Chaldea is an area, okay, which is made up of Babylonians, basically. Okay, so I am raising up the Chaldeans, and the Lord, the Lord describes who the, the Chaldeans are in just a straightforward way, and they are nasty people. In fact, they are nastier than the Jews are to one another. They are ready to usurp the law. They're ready to ignore that. They're ready to create injustice wherever they go. Now, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, were notorious in, in their time. They, they came to power as the Assyrians lost power, the Babylonians came to power, and then as the Babylonians lost power, the Medes and the Persians came to power. But the Babylonians had already sacked Ashur in 614 B.C. They had sacked Nineveh in 612 B.C., they had uh, battled Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish in 605, and now they're on the way to Jerusalem. Okay. And we know what happens in 586, Jerusalem finally falls. All those who have not yet been taken into exile are either killed or dragged away to Babylon in exile. So in verse 5, look, look among the nations, see, wonder, be astounded. That's basically the same word, some, some small variation on the same word three times. He's going to look. God's calling Habakkuk to look at this, and you're just going to be amazed. You're just going to be astounded. You're just going to look at that and go, I can't believe it. That's the way it is. It's not something predictable. And that's what we have to remember about the Lord. He is not predictable relative to our expectations of what he should do. He is predictable when he says in his word, this is the way that I am. This is the way that I work. Now he's predictable. But so often we want to go, well, God, again, answering our own prayer, God, I do it this way. And if he does it this way, we go, why in the world are you doing it that way? But being unpredictable relative to human thought and expectation is pretty much the norm for the Lord as we see him at work. Things that human eyes see and the human mind comprehends are not always what appear to be. Now, the military power of the Chaldeans as it grew in ascendancy, and, and, and what's it say? Um, they all come for violence. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress and they pile up earth and take it. The, the skill, the military skills of the Babylonians had, had reached the new, in a sense for their day, technological level. Nothing could stand in their way. No one could stop them. Only interior corruption was their fall eventually as the Medes and the Persians came along. So no power, and this, what this teaches us is that no power rises or falls unless the Lord determines it. He puts kings on thrones. He puts rulers in charge of nations. You're thinking, why would he put some of these evil people in charge of nations? Well, here, he has raised up the Babylonians for a specific purpose, to judge the evil 
of his own people. Oh, that's hard. But that's why he, in particular, he has raised them up. And then, of course, he raises up the Medes and the Persians to judge the sins of the Babylonians. Just the way that he works, okay? So the Lord is raising up this nation, and Habakkuk is utterly shocked at this because the Lord calls them what? Bitter and hasty nation. Hasty, we typically think of fast. Um, They might be hasty in the sense that they destroy everything in their path very quickly. Another translation, uh, an understanding that goes more with bitter. Uh, Bitter and nasty. Bitter and uh, just terrible. Okay, That's the nation that the Lord is raising up to judge his covenant people. So you know that his covenant people have to have strayed pretty far away from what is true and right for this nation to judge them. So some of the language that the Lord is using harkens back to some of the complaints that Habakkuk had in verses 1 through 4 there, justice and violence. But any mention really of the, the justice Verse 7, as an example, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. That's, that's kind of irony. Uh, the Lord is, in a sense, being sarcastic there because their justice stems from themselves. It is not godly justice. It comes from what they think is just. So the Lord is being ironic or sarcastic there. Um, their focus on their military power. They laugh at other kings. And how's it end? Guilty men whose own might is their God. Do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar did? He went out on his balcony one day and said, look what I have done. Look at the city that I have built. It is my majesty and my efforts that have built this. He was his own God. And what happened to him? He spent the next seven years in the pasture eating grass until the Lord again opened his eyes. And he said, you know what? There is one God and I am not it. I am not it. It. So the covenant people are going to face a human enemy who are more selfish than they are, who are more evil than they are, who are more inclined to worship themselves than even they are. God hardly ever acts in the way that we expect him to. What we think is the right way unless he lays it out for us. So clearly God is not doing what Habakkuk thinks he should do. Habakkuk wanted or expected something he knew about God, but he got from God something he didn't know. And that's one of the things we have to wrestle with. Here's what I know about God. Here's all the things I don't know. Okay, so I shouldn't be surprised when he acts in the way that he deems best. Let's look in Scripture at a couple places where God acted in ways that we scratch our heads at. Okay, we go, why in the world... Are you doing it this way? But then at the end, we can understand why he did it that way. Abraham says, comes to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, Abraham's old, Sarah's old, and they don't have any kids. The only way to become a great nation is what? To have kids. So God waits until it is humanly, physically impossible for Sarah to bear a child. And then she bears a child. Why? Because it was God. It was not Abraham. It was not Sarah. It was the Lord. And to make him a great nation, you'd think he'd give him a lot of kids. He gave him one. Only one. Next. Genesis chapter 50. 
Joseph, sold by his brothers into slavery. And they're thinking, we got rid of this troublemaker. And he's gone for years and years. He ends up in Egypt, becomes second only to the Pharaoh, and he saves his brothers. He goes through prison and, and, and accused unjustly. He was innocent. And years after, he d- saves his brothers. And what does, the, what does he say about the Lord? What men meant for evil, God meant for good. Samuel arrives at Jesse's house. Jesse, bring out your sons. I'm going to anoint one of them as king. The first son arrives, and he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before us. Biggest, tallest, you know, strongest, wisest, supposedly. And the Lord says, no, not this one. He says, you got another one? He says, yeah, I got lots of sons. He keeps bringing them out, bringing them out. And the Lord says, no, no, no. And finally, he says, don't you have any more? So I got this one, but he's the smallest. He's out tending the sheep, and his name is David. That's the man after God's own heart. We wouldn't have expected that, but that's the way that the Lord worked. Okay? Who should lead the church in the first century? Who should be, in, in humanly speaking, the greatest Christian outside of Jesus Christ? The one whose job is to destroy the church of the first century. The one who has the documents that says he can arrest anybody, he can kill anybody, he can destroy the church. His name was Saul, okay? But the Lord chose him to plant churches everywhere in the new world, to take the gospel into all those worlds. The great enemy of the church, the Lord uses, not the man we would have thought would be appropriate to do that work. The church is praying because Peter's in prison. And so what does the church do? They get together and they pray. They pray, Lord, we're praying for Peter's deliverance. There's a knock on the door. This little girl goes to the door. She opens the door, closes it, runs back and says, Peter's at the door. And they go, no, he's in prison. Don't you know? We're sitting here praying for his release. And she says, he's at the door. Nobody believes him. Nobody believes her. That's the way that the Lord works. Okay. How do you have eternal life? The death of an innocent individual. Our sin is placed on him. You would think in a human mind that there must be some way that we can work ourselves into rightness with God. But God says, no, there's not. In fact, there's absolutely no way. So I'm going to send the perfect sacrifice to you. It's my son. He has no sin in him at all, but he will bear your sin. When you believe upon him. So perhaps we should be shocked only when God acts in the way that we expect him to act. And not be shocked when he acts in the way that he wants to act. That's number one. History is God's. Second, everything the Lord does in all of history is according to his plan. It's almost the same point. History does not continue like a wagon at the top of the hill that you pushed and it goes bumping down down the road on its own. Okay, the deist thought that, that God started everything and then he takes his hands off everything else that's going on and watches it. Okay, that's not the way that the Lord works. We may think that sometimes in our own minds, but that's not the way that it works. There's a purpose and there's a timetable and it is perfect according to his will. That leads us to the third one. All of history is about the kingdom. All that goes on is about God's kingdom. 
It is about the church. It is about his work in the world. It is about God's people. So what really matters in the world is God's kingdom. Let's not be shocked when surprising things happen in our world. Our response should be, well, what relevance does that have to the kingdom? What relevance does that have to God's plan for his people, the church? Maybe we need to look personally. What needs correcting in my life? Where have I gone wrong? Why is God allowing these things? There is meaning to those types of events, our sufferings, our sorrows. There is meaning to them only when we understand who God is. Only when we understand that he is in control of all things, history belongs to him. I know it's kind of trite, but it is his story. Okay? It is not just history, it is his story. The, church, the, the story of how God begins, how God works in the world, and how God will bring it to completion in his perfect time. So after all this, let's put ourselves in Habakkuk's shoes. Not only did the Lord say something he wasn't going to believe, he takes five or six verses to lay out how terrible the Babylonians are. Really? Those terrible people are going to judge your people? We're going to have to suffer all through this? Why? I mean, let's put ourselves in issues. Why, Lord? Why would you do this to us? I think in the Bible, there is a principle. Now, I'm not going to say it's a, it's a law. I think it's a principle. Suffering precedes glory. Suffering precedes glory. I think I want to run the marathon. What am I going to have to do before I cross that tape? I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to suffer a lot. I'm going to have to work. I'm going to have to be disciplined. I'm going to have to experience pain. I'm going to have to put other things aside in my life. Suffering precedes the glory of finishing. Finishing, maybe. Maybe I want to finish first. I'm going to have to suffer more if I want to finish first. You know, I'd like to get my doctorate. You're going to suffer, okay? Those of you who've done that, you know you're going to have to spend late nights your your brain is going to hurt you're going to have to read things that you never thought you wanted to have to read and you're going to have to do it very quickly and you're going to have to suffer if you want to stand in front of people and get that hood put on you and now make everybody call you doctor you just call me randy okay that's fine i want to be a medical doctor what am i gonna to have to do uh, i'm gonna to have to study and i'm gonna to have to sacrifice I may have to take out great loans to get there. And then I may have to work 36 hours at a time and go on. But the glory is when that person that you have cared for opens their eyes and says, thank you. You have saved my life. Suffering precedes glory. Now, how many of us have ever asked the Lord to make us suffer so that we can get to his glory? I've not prayed that prayer, I want to tell you. <laughs> I've not prayed that prayer. Usually, it's, Lord, protect me. Lord, keep me safe. Lord, bless my family. Don't let anything happen to me. That's more like the way we pray. We don't pray, Lord, bring suffering in my life so I may have a, a chance to understand your glory, so I may get to your glory. Because what we really want is glory. 
We don't necessarily want to suffer. We just want the end product. We want the glory. But if the Lord is at work in your life, the life of those you love or the body of Christ, it takes effort, it takes sacrifice, sometimes suffering to arrive at the glory the Lord has for you. Habakkuk doesn't understand the great glory that the Lord has for him and his people yet. Glory that is yet to be experienced for Israel. It's one of those things, it's coming. It's coming. And in order to get there, they will have to suffer first here at the hands of the Chaldeans in judgment. So you may focus on the suffering that you have experienced or are experiencing in your life. But God's taken the time to mold you and to shape you so that his glory may be revealed in your life. So let's pray. Lord, these are, are great things. You are the author of history. You're the author of creation. You have done this work, and here you have placed us. You've placed us in this time in history, at this place. Sometimes to suffer, but in all times that your goodness and glory might be revealed in our lives so that others may know of who you are so their eyes might be open to this great gift of grace and salvation that comes in the person of Jesus the Christ. Lord, help us understand like Habakkuk, why are you doing it this way? Why must my life be like this? Why must the life of my people I love, perhaps my children or my parents, be like this at this time? Let us ask the real question. How can I see your glory in this? How are you shaping us for your purposes that we might be a light in the darkness of this world? That by our actions, by our attitudes that are shaped by you, that are Christ-like, we might declare the glories of Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Everyone, please take a hymnal and turn to him.